Welcome to Whiskey in the Arts podcast, a collaborative exploration of creation and perception, with your hosts, Kurt Protzman and Dan Kroll. That's the whole reason you do this stuff is to learn exactly. stuff like that. That's a riot. Exactly. The the insider stuff always fascinating. So we've uh, we've arrived at uh, episode two. We have not been banned by the FCC in any capacity. <laughs> I haven't lost my job. Clearly which arrived. Is great. Um, we're just we're still just honing our, our talents here. I'm uh, I'm uh, Dan Kroll. I'm the U.S. brand ambassador for Glamorgy Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. This is the Whiskey and Arts podcast. Um, uh, we're uh, very excited uh, to make it to episode two. Uh, and I'm very excited to share the airwaves with my um, partner, as always, uh, Kurt Protzman. Uh, Kurt, how are you doing? Well, thanks, Dan. I, I'm doing. I'm doing great. It was. Uh, <clears throat> I'm excited for the second show here. Uh, excited to get past the sort of whiskey gate thing. Dropping the. Uh, I was fascinated with the idea of dropping the ice cubes in the glass as sort of a sound mm-hmm, effect, mm-hmm. but uh, the backlash over the followed yeah the killer, but. I'm excited. Uh, I think I told you this before. I had written it down wrong. I'm excited for our guest tonight. I'm excited we have a guest. I, <laughs> yes, I think yes. it's up to him to decide how excited he is. But in my mind, in my mind, I hope he's not too nervous and he's just thinking, okay, I've, I've toured the world. I've been 70 countries, toured the world, but I get to be on these guys' second it's- podcast. That's kind of where my head right, going. Into right, very among the the list of his uh, career's highest achievements, I'm sure. Uh, we're we're Trying talking uh, about none other than uh, Matt Wallace. Uh, Matt is a uh, longtime member of the uh, Maynard Ferguson band. Uh, he's an Omaha native, a very good friend of mine. Uh, he has uh, he and I have uh, shared a stage on many many occasions, which has always been an honor for me. Uh, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for being a part of it. Enchanté. <laughs> Glad to be nice. here. Nice, very cool. And how how are you doing? How's uh, how's uh, life with you? I think things are looking up. Uh, you know, as everybody knows, things have been a little dark and uh, over the last year for sure. And I've noticed that. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of hard to not notice it. Uh, you know, the clubs are starting to open back up. You know, with the vaccines taking hold and a little bit of herd immunity, and hopefully. Uh, you know, the everything the rollout goes as as we seems to be going. Uh and like I said, the clubs are open. I think the summer is gonna be fantastic for outdoor gigs, not just here in Omaha, but everywhere. Cause that's it's everything is a new model now, and that's kind of the new model. If you can do it outside do it outside. Yeah, and I and I think it has the, there's a lot of conversation about which which learned behaviors that have been learned as a result of uh, the pandemic will stick around. And I feel like that's one of them. Uh the the sort of the gym particularly when the weather cooperates obviously. But uh the the joy of an outdoor show, uh, there's just a different kind of a vibe to it. Uh it's communal, but it's also sort of open. Uh and I really like the balance of that. Well, it's what everybody's looking for, I think. You know, we all realize, man, being in a room by yourself is no fun. Right. Even with the greatest Xbox or Nintendo or, you know, Netflix. I mean, how many more Netflix shows can I watch? Exactly. I need to go outside and play. (laughs) No no, no live music going on on the planet. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the effect of that. I mean, I I know the immediate effect of it. it. Now it seems almost abstract to go experience now. And, and I just, I didn't need this experience because I need live music. Right. Yeah. Well, Dan and I just played uh, with Nikki Boulay at Jewel uh, last Friday and had a couple of sold out shows and, and it, you know, it really, there was a lot of optimism in the air. I thought I did. Yeah. It felt like a, like a group catharsis and it wasn't mean, you know, I think, I, you know, I think the band sounded good, but it felt a little bit like a celebration of people being around each other. Uh, we we happened to be you know sort of in the in the epicenter of that and that was that was a blast, but it was just I was looking around the room and you could just kind of see that people had uh, were deriving a certain amount of giddy joy from being around other human beings. Uh, it was great to see that you know it's one of those things that I that I hope sticks around as a result of the pandemic is that people uh, 
uh, once they're able to be in each other's presence again, you know, some of the some of the ingrained animosity, social animosity that exists currently, I'm hoping that some of that softens when people actually get to hang out and cope with each other in real time in three dimensions again. Matt, what was it like to have, you know, sort of pulled in through that? Uh, you know what nobody ever has to pull dan dan is the the driving machine that that made that groove happen on every dude and i do like sometimes i'll turn towards him when i'm playing percussion and and look him right in the face right in the eye just because he's so serious about what he's doing i like to make him smile (laughs) kind of push him off the block just for a second, <laughs> but he's again right back to the grooving machine because he's got a job to do. There, there is a set of responsibilities there, and you know we were talking uh, when we kind of did a, a little bit of a, a pre-show thing, and and uh, Kurt, I think you'd asked a question about, um, and it, Matt, we'll get into this, but uh, you know who do you key off of when you're on stage? And uh, and Matt had mentioned the the bass player, and, I, and I'd like him to elaborate on that. But uh, one of the things that that I notice is that I tend to find the person who grooves the hardest, uh, and that might be the vocalist, and it might be the sax player, it might be it could be anybody. Ideally, it's the bassist because I'm supposed to be building a foundation with that person. But if right. it isn't, I got to find who's grooving the hardest, and then try to lock in with them. And so when when Matt grabs a, I mean Matt as a player is. Uh, a, a tremendously tasty and groovy player, but when he grabs a piece of uh, of hand percussion like a tambourine, it's almost a relief to me because I know somebody else is going to be grooving their brains out uh, on stage. And so when he like when he when he turns around and starts playing a tambourine, I'm like, okay, this is great. I'm not on an island, you know. And and there are there are loads of other people grooving, but not necessarily in that staccato kind of. Uh, 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 ostinato rhythm kind of a thing, uh, and right. the, the drummer tends to be the one who's providing the the ostinato pattern that everybody hangs their hats off of. Uh, but when somebody like like we've in that band, there's a there's a Latin percussionist. His name is Michael Michael Pujato. is amazing. Uh, so and playing with him is another one of those relief moments where it's like, okay, somebody else is helping to to plug in the underpinnings sure. of the rhythm here. Uh, so it's 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 a blast to play with you because I get to hear you play sax, but it's also a blast from a rhythmic perspective because you groove like crazy. Well, as you know, the the whole point of the shakers and the tambourine and the, the stuff that I tend to do, it's all right inside your hi hat. I'm essentially a nuance to that hi hat. But back to the question, I always listen to the bass player the most because they're the one person that has their foot in the rhythm and the harmony pool. At the same time. So theoretically, that person should be the base of the chord mm-hmm. or whatever the fabric, the structure is. And yet rhythmically, they're they're the ones that should be locked in with the drums, that battery really kind of bring it home. You and Clay sounded great, by the way. That was was nice to have that uh that little battery together. And it also as a percussionist, it made it so much easier for Michael and I to do things with you. Because the time was, it's it is fun to to when you're playing with a guy like Clay, his his right hand articulation, where the where the real rhythm, I mean, you know, his note choice is going to be a left hand thing, but his but his rhythmic articulation is going to be a right hand thing, and he's got a really solid right hand, which is which is very helpful in terms of my note choice. I get to look at you know where's the kick going to go here, where's the snare going to go here, where where are the accent pieces, and he's helping out by laying out a framework that helps me make those decisions with a little bit more. Uh, well, again, he's yeah, he's inside your kick. Yeah, drum. exactly right. Your kick. Well, it's more like your kick drums inside the bass, I guess. Uh, but it's the same thing, and that's when bands really, when music becomes magic, is when those kind of fundamentals are paid attention to, and then the band really kind of locks into sometimes a very symmetrical, driven kind of a thing that makes sense. It makes sense to us. It makes sense to the crowd. You know, everything is proceeding. All the ships are sailing in the same direction. Right, basically. which is which is very helpful. Um, I, I was lucky enough to take a, a drum lesson too uh, from Peter Erskine, and one of the things that he said to me right away was, "Your job is to make the other people on stage comfortable, so that they can play without anxiety." 
and that and then that translates to the audience so don't you don't worry about the audience yet you worry about the other people on stage if they're comfortable you're doing your job peter erskine played on maynard's band that's kind of where well he played on stan kenton's band and then maynard's nice. band and he would come and sit in with us i got to do a little tenor drum battle nice. with him. uh yeah in in la you know in the mid 90s but my favorite thing about Peter Erskine, they said, what's the most important thing that Maynard Ferguson taught you? And he said, bring a cooler with a six pack in it on ice. <laughs> <laughs> that, that seems like just generally good advice right. for well, pursuing almost right. anything. But of course, uh, it was supposed to be a musical question, and that's just not where <laughs> Petey was going. He wasn't having it. Now, Pete, uh, Pete uh, rose to the most probably uh, uh, significant fame of his career as a member of Weather Report, just to set some context there. Um, you had mentioned also uh, having getting things dialed in. Um, or this this whiskey that we're having uh, that we're each having this evening is uh, is Glamorangie eighteen year. Uh, in my opinion, uh, it's it's my favorite Glamorangie, and it doesn't really have. It's not based on price point. It's not based on anything else. It's just the one that I find is most dialed into my sense of what whiskey, where whiskey reaches its apex. Uh, I'm hoping that you guys are enjoying what you uh, what you're consuming here with me. You know what? I actually wrote up a little list. This is funny because I'll be honest. I opened the bottle before tonight. <laughs> Good. That's great. You know, just being mad. Honest. It was great having you on the show. And um... next, <laughs> uh, no, I was I was just thinking about the the drinking that and and playing music and how. You know, in the whiskey business, it's about the best ingredients. It's about that water. It's, yeah. you know, it's about the hops, the barley. Just like you want to have players in the band that communicate to each other. You know, the Glenn Morangy has to have drinkability. We have to have listenability. You know, you start with what the concept is. The drink for us, that would be a song or a tune mm -hmm. or whatever. Uh, but to me, the most important thing is the aging. Yeah. It's the experience that culminates in having the best experience possible, whether it's whiskey or music. Right. That's it's a, that's a, that's a very good point. Uh, one of the underpinnings of this uh, podcast is the idea that uh, nonverbal forms of communication that involve uh, the creative process and the consumption of somebody else's creative process have parallels regardless of what they how they manifest themselves whether it's the liquid arts the visual arts the 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 musical arts um, all of those things have a creative process where that starts with a uh, you'd mentioned a thing and I wanted I want to get to it uh, over the course of the show um, we were talking initially. Uh, um, you had mentioned the concept of the mind's ear, uh, and I, mm -hmm. that that oh, I kind that of show. that kind of made me want to create this. The, I want to title this show that because it's it ends up being a thing where if you're creating a piece of music um, uh, from some creative process inside of your head, you're the first one who's ever heard it. It's just that nobody else has heard it yet. So then there's the then there's the mechanical physical manifestation of creating the actual uh, sonic performance that that communicates that to somebody else. But inside it starts it's, you start with that kernel of creativity and then you back into the uh, the the craft based processes by which you make it real for others. And that's that's really what happens with whiskey as well. It's and with the visual arts or anything else. Uh, our guy that that uh, makes Glamorangy, Dr. Bill Lumsden, he's he does that same thing. He sleeps uh, uh, with a dream journal next to his bed. He'll wake up and he'll write stuff down, and and some of that stuff ends up being the inspirations for flavor profiles that then become whiskeys. And it's not whiskey. Sometimes becomes this thing where you think you just cram it in a barrel and you leave it for twelve years and then you come back, and it's a thing regardless of you know what you wanted to have happen. Sometimes that's the case, and in other ways, you reverse engineer the process to arrive at that thing you tasted with your mind's mouth in the first place, uh, like mm -hmm. the mind's ear. You know that <laughs> that that part of the creative process, I think, is really. Really fun. You go into a bar. You go into a studio, and the, the the band even has never heard heard the song before. 
you know, you're all playing it for the first time for each other. I just, I find that process really fascinating. Uh, the mind's talking about the mind's ear thing. Maynard would say to me, uh, my degree in, from UNL is in political science. I didn't take any music classes while I was there. I'm, I'm self-taught as an improviser, as a musician. And because of that, I'm a little left-handed. I don't have all the tricks that maybe the music school studying guys have. But what Maynard said was, it makes my playing unique. And he said, once someone has heard you, they always know it's you when they hear you again on a recording or on a live date or whatever. And I've always thought that it's that being left-handed a little bit makes it a little unique. And so for my mind's ear, it uh, it's allowed me, well, and see, this leads into the whole other part of my big backstory, which was, you know, I was the student body president at Lincoln. I was on the Board of Regents. My sister found these adoption documents. I always knew I was adopted, but and raised in the heart of my folks, so no wanting. Uh, it turned out that my biologics were married traveling road musicians who didn't want to raise a child as a carny to play on the road. And Maynard loved the fact I became the longest standing road member on his band of all time. <laughs> and I became exactly what they were trying not to. You know, so he goes, when it comes to nature and nurture, uh, I think we know exactly, you know, which, which leg you exactly. stand on. You know? how, how, much do you, how much do you know about them, Matt? I, I'd read that story about you, and I thought that was just fascinating. I mean, there's, you know, it's certainly beyond coincidence that that was the, that was the fact. Do you know much about them, what they played? What they... Not really, just, just basic, basic things that, and that my sister found. And what ended up happening is at the time I was 21, 22, I suppose, and I realized for the first time why music had always been so easy for me growing up. And I didn't have to work as hard at it, didn't practice as much as other people did. And so that was the final summer before I graduated from college. And it was the only time I took summer school. And what I did was I would go out every night, uh, Monday through Thursday, and I'd walk around campus and I would work on majors, minors, and dominance, like the basic building blocks. And so I'd walk around every night, and finally I got to the Sheldon Art Gallery, and I found underneath the bridge, there was this very rich, resonant sound. So I would literally stand over this gate and play underneath this bridge, and I never played tunes or any kind of music. I was only working on chords and scales and getting the relationships right in my head. And what it turned into was a big, hot makeout session thing for people to come and sit on the bridge or to sit around. And eventually, there was an article, Who's the Mysterious Sax Man Underneath the Sheldon Art Gallery Bridge? <laughs> and uh, they ended up, the Daily Nebraskan uh, came down, and they sent a reporter, and he took some great photos and did a little story about me, which ran. And that guy now is Joel Sartori, who's one of National Geographic's most famous world oh, travelers. Wow. And Robin and I went to one of his presentations. And we figured that between the two of us, we'd been to 120 countries, wow. something like that, and thought that was pretty cool for a couple of guys that were in Lincoln at the same time, underneath the bridge in the Sheldon Art Gallery, to actually get out and see the world. That's fantastic. So I, I, I had a question about that. That's the that's the Ninth or Tenth Street overpass there, right? Right by no, on it's the right north. right in the Art Gallery. It's a small little bridge. Okay. It's, yeah, it's not the big one. There's no. Well, cars. I was going to ask you if you'd ever tried the 28th, 27th Street overpass, 56th Street. I just didn't know if they had different characters. Sonic you know, qualities. But you know what? The, the, my favorite one was I used to do the River City Star a lot, and every time we'd go underneath the I eighty bridge, what I figured out, I got to be pals with one of the ship captains, and I figured out that the lowest note on my tenor, a low B flat. Uh, which is a low concert, A-flat, the ship's horn was one octave below. Nice. Mm. So what we had a bit worked out where I'd be playing, I'd be playing, and then I'd cut the band off, and I'd walk to the front of the boat, and as we went under the overpass, I'd go, Bah! And then he'd come up with, Bah! 
<laughs> and everybody at first thought I was the ship's horn until <laughs> the real ship's horn came in, and it was so loud and low and awesome. And that was a bit we both loved it every time I played when he was, you know, when he was there. We it was a, such a great bit. That's fantastic. Back, back to back to growing up, r- real quick. Yeah. Y- y- your folks. Were they encouraging? Very. They want you to be a CPA. What was going on? You know what? Uh, my dad actually was a lawyer for Northern Natural Gas and then became general counsel for InterNorth and would have been Enron's first general counsel when that merged. Uh, he was 16, 14 months maybe away from retirement, and his not trusting of Kenway oh, first was born out later right. when that thing you know, fell apart. But they were... they. They knew, I I think, what some of my makeup was. And so they were always very encouraging of all that stuff. But just like any other kid, they were good about encouraging whatever it was that I wanted to do. And the music thing was just so... I had these elephant ears that could just soak the sound in and I would know what to do. The I started playing at 10 and in fifth grade band, concert band, the band director stopped the band and he said, who's playing on the rests? And I raised my hand. And he said, you know that arrest means don't play. And I said, yes. And he said, why are you playing? And I said, because I hear music during the rests. And he goes, okay, number one, don't ever play again during a rest. And number two, I can't wait for seventh grade jazz band. <laughs> <laughs> and he was my, you know, my jazz band guy all through junior high. And uh, a guy named Jim Johnson, and he was really great. And, and the the West Side jazz bands that I played with were all pretty pretty incredible. That uh, that thing I was gonna that led to a question I was gonna ask about uh, early mentors. Uh, it sounds like maybe he was yours. Uh, imagine you've been mentored to lots and lots of kids because uh, you, you're involved in music education uh, still, aren't you? You know what? We've had three of the most famous. I think they'll be very famous. Tenor saxophone, young guys. Uh, Pete Fuccinaro, who was was just the one o'clock guy. Scott Younginger, who's uh, at Illinois with Chip McNeil, who I did a bunch of records with on Maynard's band, who for my money is the greatest tenor player alive. And then maybe the creme de la creme is, is Cole Polinski, who's at NYU on a scholarship with two of my ex-Maynard guys, working with him out wow. there and we did a gig i did a gig with the three of them and it dawned on me at one point how how well cole was playing pete's already in the one o'clock at north texas so he's literally one of the greatest young tenor players in college period by virtue of that sky being with chip also but i started thinking you know i've played the, the saxophone for 43 years and cole's played it for five and most people probably couldn't tell the difference between wow. us. I mean, he's amazing. But well, all but three the- of them are. And, and and to have them that close, all within a four-year time period, uh, it's it's pretty amazing. Well, you, you, you're selling yourself a little a little short there, because here you are, you're you're barely out of college, and, and you get picked up by Maynard Ferguson. It's like 87, right? You play at the, speaking of missing live music, Open, Howard Street. Yeah, in, I, yeah. I actually uh, opened... Two shows for him at the Howard Street Tavern uh, in like May. It's right around his birthday, which was the beginning of May. And the deal was they they basically said we want you to send in a tape. And I went went against the North Texas guys, the Eastman, the Berkeley, the you know uh, Miami guys, whatever. But what Maynard kind of said was at the time because it was a high voltage band, it was me and Maynard and a five piece rhythm section. Uh, and the fact that, that I could play a bunch of different horns, play flute, sing, you kind of needed to wear some different caps because it was just the two of us. I really think that's what helped me get the gig. And the flute was probably the final thing. And I was fortunate enough. I'd been studying with the principal flautist from the Omaha symphony for about two years, right before that happened. So my flute was, was about as good as it, it ever has been. So everything was up to the proper level, and I was in the right place at the right time. And and so they said, yeah, we're thinking December. This was May. 
and I was playing in Telluride, Colorado with him in June. Wow. So it, it, oh, wow. it happened very that's, quickly. That's fast. Um, it brings up an interesting point uh, about the flute. And I, you know, I've, I've been meaning to ask you this for years, uh, and in, in researching what we were going to do tonight, uh, I've noticed a number of other prominent saxophone players who are also accomplished flautists. Is there something similar in the embouchure, in, in the in the chops based aspect of that, or what is it? Why do sax players uh, pursue the flute? You know what? Well, it's partly because in the big band, you got to play clarinet, flute, and saxophone. Oh all the way across the spectrum. Uh, I always tell people the flute and the saxophone are like snow skiing and water skiing. They look, they look alike because you got two things on your feet, but when you're water skiing, you're laying back and you're letting the boat do the work. And in snow skiing, you're leaning forward and you're kind of letting your knees do the work. The flute, you can't bully. The flute wants to be really delicate it wants to be laid back, you know, but the saxophone you can push on a little bit. You, so what saxophone players have to learn is to back off and allow the flute to be something different. The fingerings are fairly close. Some of them are just different enough that it really screws you up until you let's. That's why I started studying with the principal flautist, because I'd had enough of trying to play the flute like a saxophone player. I wanted to play the flute for flute's sake. And that was just another thing. Getting that together was another thing that prepared me to to get the main right. gig. Um, you are credited. So you'd mentioned vocals. You are credited as a vocalist uh, on the the high voltage album, the high voltage two, and that track that you added. I wanted to rattle off a few of the things that uh, that you two have added to the collaborative playlist. One of them being the track Omaha from uh, 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 High Voltage Two. Uh, the Man in Ferguson, uh, High Voltage 2, you are credited not only as a vocalist, but also as the co-writer of that track, um, which is impressive as hell. You know what? It, I sang from the very get-go. The very first night uh, I sang, and I always sang one song a night, and Maynard liked the fact that I could just go out and do one thing and then pop back into the band and do these other things. But the the classic Matt Wallace singing stories uh, from the Blue Note, I want to say maybe 94, uh, there was a song that I did for a long time called I Don't Want to Be a Hoochie Coochie Man No More. And I, I sang it every show, every night. We're at the Blue Note. Liza Minnelli is sitting out at a table. Uh, and we finished, and I made, made eye contact with her, waved to her and whatnot. And uh, after we finished the set, uh, this guy walked up and said, uh, Liza Minnelli would love to have a word with you uh, if you can spare a few minutes. And I was like, sure. So I walked over to the table and I met the priest, the stylist, the chauffeur, the musical director, Courtier. I mean, she had she had the whole entourage. Wow. So I said, I said, Liza, would you like to go upstairs and say hello to Maynard? And it reminded me so much of her mom. She was like, could I? <laughs> And I was like, yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure Maynard would, would like <laughs> to meet you and say hello to you. So I said, uh, you can bring anybody you want. And so she turns around and she looks at the table and it was kind of, uh, it was a little strange, like, pick me, pick me, oh, pick me. So she picked the priest. So the dressing rooms were upstairs. When you got upstairs, the kitchen was to the left. All the way down the hall was Maynard's dressing room. The band dressing room was to the right. The ladies' restroom was to the left. So as we're walking up the steps, I'm walking first. Liza's right behind me. She's wearing this beautiful black chiffon gown, these Manolo Blahnik pumps that are awesome. And I hear the, the priest say, oh, Liza, you've sat on some gum. <laughs> and, and so as we're walking, I said, hey, uh, I'll take you to the band dressing room. There's an ice machine up here. You know, we'll we'll get the gum off. So I take them in the band dressing room. I get the ice. I come back in. Now what you have is Liza takes a chair and she turns it around backwards and she puts her right foot up on that chair and she's bent over kind of looking back and the priest is holding the material on the dress and I have the ice in a towel with my hand right on her right cheek. <laughs> well, leave it for that moment for three of the guys in the band to come back in and they open the door <laughs> and Liza's looking back 
and the priest was looking over, and I got my hand on her ass, and and they they actually the door was coming open slowly. They just pulled the door slowly back, and the trumpet player looked at me and goes, "What is it with you?" <laughs> All right, so we get the gum off. Great. I got my hand on her butt. It was pink gum. This, you know. So now Maynard isn't quite ready. He's he's uh, changing clothes. And so Liza says, well, that's fine. I got to go in the bathroom. So Liza goes in the bathroom to the left, Maynard straight ahead, and the band dressing room's to the right. So Liza comes out. Now Maynard's ready. The door opens. I look down, and she's got about six inches of toilet paper hanging <laughs> off the right stiletto heel. Now, at this point, she looked great. She was dancing a lot. Uh, she was clean and sober. She, she was really amazing. She was a total delight to be around. As she's walking into Maynard's dressing room, I'm trying to step on the toilet paper so that she'll just naturally walk out and won't even notice it. But every time I go to step near her, because she's a, a dancer and protective of her feet, she moves her foot. So I can't get it. So she walks in. And she's standing there meeting Maynard with this toilet paper, which eventually I did stand on it when she took a step forward to say hello. I, I reached down and, and, you know, snagged it away. All right. So, of course, one of her big things was uh, it's Liza with a Z, not Lisa. She hated being called Lisa. And uh, so she said, hey, uh, I'd love to have that song that Matt sang. And so Maynard goes, here, I'll autograph you a copy. So he autographs it and hands it to me and what he's written is to lisa <laughs> with a big oh, s no. best wishes maynard ferguson so now he hands it to me she hasn't seen it yet so i'm trying to make that s into a z let's just make that into a z and then signed it and gave it to her now the, the beauty of the thing was this was a thursday night and she was playing in boston friday saturday sunday she cut her her late show short on the Sunday to fly back to New York to catch Maynard's last show of the week. And she wanted me to write some arrangements for her. Hey. She goes, I really love Maynard's arrangements. And I said, you know what? I can do it, but the guy to do it is our trombone player. Is He's quick. He's really good. So he ended up staying in New York for another week and did a bunch of arrangements for her. And like I said, she couldn't have been any nicer, any lovelier. Uh, it was a great thing, but so then the band was like, so uh, Priest, Liza Minnelli, and Matt Wallace walk into a bar. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> what is it with you? And somebody ends up with toilet paper on their shoes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which she never knew about. I was trying so hard that she never thought. Well right. played. That's, there's some real tact there. That's that's a, a deft deft maneuver right there, which is... Quite impressive. Um, the, so the, the the tracks that each of you has added are, of course, uh, saxophone focused, but they're, they, they cover a lot of ground um, from uh, Bruce Springsteen, obviously, to Shakaria uh, and, and a lot of stuff in between. Uh, is there anything about, uh, say, uh, Kurt, the, the tracks that you added, what was it about them that made you want to add them to the collaborative list? I uh, I was just thinking through saxophone, and I was thinking through music that I love and I listen to, and it in it where it existed, and I, and I honestly felt, you know, I love Springsteen. Sometimes you feel trite, going, "Hey, Clarence Clemens, the big man, of course," but but of course, of course, and uh, I I was I was doing a lot of thinking about it. We talked about it, I guess, uh, prepping a little bit, just about it in contemporary music. And I was thinking back to Bill Haley and I was thinking about the presence of horns. And then I think we talked about in the seventies or the late sixties that kind of split off kind of an R and B thing, hung on to horns, rock drops it. Uh, I was curious about this idea of rock, less rock and roll. And I don't, I don't know, but, um, for me, the, uh, 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 the, uh, Rasan Roland Kirk is the one and I've just been, having so much fun listening back through because I bought that album in college in Lincoln, going to Wesleyan. I'm listening to all kinds of things. And I pulled up that Ed Sullivan clip from 71 and I got that same thrill from the first time I heard him. And, um, I, 
long answer, I guess I figured out that there is a major connection um, through the things I listen to and some stuff I really uh, love, the Bobby Keys stuff. Um, you said it, Matt. I mean, you just you couldn't take him out of that equation and have those tracks. Um, and I, you know, I hear it. I spent too much time only listening to guitar in music, but I hear it a lot like guitar. That's why I thought it was interesting, Matt, that you say you listen to the, you know, you listen to the bass. You know, I had all these conventions about who listens to who, and then I read that Keith Richards thing that he he pays attention to Charlie. So now I know that you know it's all over the place. But I don't know. That just seemed like a little spectrum well, to me. You know what though? But here's the thing: in a rock band, uh, the what I was talking about was really based on jazz stuff and fusion stuff. Okay. In a rock band, really, the bass player doesn't have the responsibility that. So, if I were playing that gig, I probably would listen to Charlie, because really, the bass is not doing it. The parts are great, but they're fairly simple. Right. And sometimes, you know, and, and that's part of what makes them work is the simplicity. That's part of the problem with jazz. Sometimes it gets so complex, it loses not only the audience, but the musicians playing it, you know. So there's something to be said about that. But you're talking about Tim Reese, basically, who said, you know, without Bobby Keys playing that one solo, all of a sudden built a life for horn players to to play with the Rolling Stones. and 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 of course, we all can understand liking when he's not playing his saxophone, he's playing his, his keyboard and he's right there looking at Charlie Watts. It's like, this is my work face. <laughs> you know, how awesome is that? <laughs> right. You know, the complexity thing is something Dan and I go back and forth on, Matt. And uh, when I probably first heard jazz or paid attention, it was kind of an 80s fusion thing, but I didn't have any education, and it it sounded just complex and not very interesting for it. I couldn't grab onto a single thing um, until I went, like I did, I've done with any music that I've fallen in love with, work backwards to its more elemental, yeah. to its history. Yeah. Uh, the Chick Corea track that I picked, Humpty Dumpty and Rest in Peace, yeah. Chick, uh, in 1978, I was a sophomore at West Side High School and a great drummer. He was actually with me when I got the Maynard gig, and we're still friends to this day, named Bill Bowmeyer. He came into a practice room. I was practicing, and and he came in, and he goes, you got to check this out. And he played me Chick Corea Humpty Dumpty. And I was talking to Bill two days ago, and I said, you playing that really kind of altered the course of my life because for the first time I was completely mystified at how music had become magic. Sort of the idea that, you know, the wind whips across the waves and you can't see the wind, but you see the effect, you know, it's there. And that tune for me with, with Steve Gadd and Eddie Gomez and Joe Farrell and Chick to me, and like I said, that was 78. To me, that music is like a single malt. And the fusion stuff that I laid on my list is is more like a blend, mm -hmm. more like world music. This is about as, Humpty Dumpty is about as pure jazz as you can get, and it's just burning. It's that kind of North Texas kind of a burn. And I've always found it interesting that on the East Coast, which North Texas is a very East Coast kind of oriented thing, on the East, East Coast, all the studio sessions I've ever done always use a click track. On the West Coast, they never use a click track. And they'll say, we're not machines, man. We're human beings. Let's let it ebb and flow a little bit when it needs to. But I've always found the dichotomy very interesting because I tend to play like the East Coast guys, but I'm more in line with the West Coast guys when it comes to the fact that we're not machines. You know, it's, uh, let's let it ebb and flow a little bit. Well, speaking of that, you were talking about experience before. And my first major experience with live music was Zubar, Lincoln, uh, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska, and, and seeing all those great bands come through. And I began to notice, and I hear it all the time now in music, with greater experience, um, either they create or they are more comfortable allowing more space 
inside the songs. They're not mm-hmm. trying to, I'm not just referring to not filling everything up with notes, although that's part of that, yeah. but just more at ease with it. Um, and I could definitely track it to age and, and, and experience. And that's something I appreciate almost more than anything in music is when I observe that someone is comfortable with that space in there, will allow it, work with it. That's the most interesting stuff in there, that negative space to me. You know, Miles always said, it's not the notes you play, it's the ones you don't. And there's a famous story about he was a big Lakers fan, and he would go to the games and write tunes. He'd close his eyes, and he'd just listen, and somebody finally said, what are you listening to? And he said, well, they make a shot, everybody's running down the court, there's not much noise. The ball comes up into the front court, all of a sudden the defense starts digging in, you hear the sneak the sneakers squeak and he goes, when the shot goes up, there's nothing, no sound. Cause everyone's turning to look at the ball. And then either it's a, it's a make and you hear the crowd cheer or you hear the clang off the rim uh, or whatever. And now they're running the other way and it's no sound again. And I think part of what he was doing was it was the space in between the space, right? It's not about what you play. It's about what you don't play that makes what you play that much more important. But it takes some experience to... Oh, absolutely. To... Yeah. Right? I mean... Yeah, yeah. It's... Uh, absolutely, it takes experience to learn when basically to shut up. We, you know, it, uh, we've lost... You mentioned Chikoria. We've lost so many through this pandemic. And and uh, Dan, I, it, we were talking about Eddie Van Halen when he passed away. So there's a... There's a great example of somebody who plays a lot of notes. So it isn't just about that, but it's about um, varying things and, and, and how to sort of arrange and orchestrate them because there are all these other guys that could play super fast yeah. notes, but it wasn't very musical. Yeah. He was Kurt, always musical. Kurt, you're setting me up nicely. The Alan Holdsworth thing I put on, uh, the great British guitarist, uh, he, he influenced... All those guys, Eddie Van Halen, uh, Yngwie Malmsteen, Joe Satriani, all of them have said that Alan Holdsworth was was like the guy. And he's the one that did the tribute to Glenn Morangy, basically the 16 Men of Tain, which the record is called. There's also a single on it. And then my little moment of pride is it's a trio record. And the bass player, Dave Carpenter, was on Maynard's band right before me. And the drummer, Gary Novak, and I were on Maynard's band together. Okay. Um, but it's just the idea that that guy influenced all these people. And Alan Holdsworth played a lot of notes, just like Eddie and Joe. But I think, in my mind, those guys play the right notes. And it's okay to play a lot if they're the right notes. If they're not right. the right notes then it's either boring or too much or, or whatever, you know? There's a there's a thing there that I think goes back to uh, negative space uh, and note choice and such. And, and uh, Bruford, um, uh, yes, King Crimson drummer, uh, Bill Bruford, who'd, who'd kind of made it clear for me when he, when he had said something along the lines of, music is a series of uh, building tension and then releasing that tension. Uh, and when you you know you're in control of when the how how the tension is built uh, to what extent it's built and when it's released and if you if you think about it in terms of you know chord uh, chord choice and, and uh, non chord tones leading to other things and creating these kind of uh, these false expectations in terms of how a thing's going to resolve itself or you've got like when people are waiting for the for the ball to go into the hoop there's that that tension. Is it going to go in or not? And then there's the release, right. and then there's that sound, and that and the crowd goes wild, or they don't, or and that that tension is suspended for another series of play. That kind of it, the the push and pull, and Kurt, we've talked about this as well. The 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 elasticity uh, of those moments, whether they're music or whether they're you know sports or whatever, the elasticity is not metric. Uh, the 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 release comes when the release comes, and if you are uh, the more controlled that you, the more experience that you have, the more control that you have, the less you are tethered to the 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 the, the metric aspects of what's going on. Like that uh, that Holdsworth track, Gary Novak plays the hell out of that track. 
but his his job is 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 metronomic to a greater extent than other folks so it gives other people an opportunity to push and pull uh the to test the elasticity of the space between the bar lines which i think is is where all the tension and release kind of not all of it but a good chunk of it comes from uh talking about how great glenn morangy is i want to equate it to gary novak his folks both incredible piano players his lineage his family's way back all musicians and it's the same thing with a good scotch it's there's a lineage there and they've worked on it and worked on it and worked on it and polished the stone and that's why it's so good because it's what they're supposed to be doing they're good at it they're meant <laughs> to be good at it you know and so yeah and i, I did like the fact that alan because you would think guitar players they like loud he liked gary's playing because he could play softly which wasn't the way most drummers wanted to interpret jazz fusion stuff uh you know that's totally what got him the gig and the other thing i liked about gary's mom and dad gary's dad was a great jazz pianist mom was a classical pianist and his dad was amazing and his dad admitted to me one night and gary confirmed this his dad said uh, I'm not the best piano player in the family. My wife is. Nice. And I went to Gary and I said, "Your, your dad said mom is the best." He goes, "Oh, we all, we all agree. She's amazing. Wow. She doesn't play what we're doing, you know, but she is so amazing at what she does. And that's, you know, back to the 16 minute yeah. pain. You know, when you've done it over a period of time and you're good at it and you get better at it, you know, you get a superior product. You, you know, I'd put. Coltrane's Love Supreme, I just put the part one on there. And it seems to me that that just exemplifies everything we're talking about here. I mean, those that that the space, things coming in where you don't expect them, tension building, it's unbelievable. Alan Holdsworth is called the John Coltrane of guitar. Oh, wow, That's I didn't true. realize that. That's what everybody has said. He's just, huh. it's sheets of sound. It's, you know, now having said that, one of the first times I played at the Blue Note in the late 80s, I was with a friend in Juilliard, and we heard a piano, a young 19-year-old pianist getting a lesson, and this kid was amazing. He was great. And the teacher, jazz, playing jazz, and the teacher finally said, every time you breathe, stop playing. Because this kid had so many chops, it was just chop, 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 chop for days. And... We thought, what? why is this instructor busting this kid up? And finally he said, the audience needs a pause to reflect on the information you've just given them and to prepare for new information. Every time you play too much, you're amazing, but you play too much. No one, you lose everyone after a couple of minutes because it's too much information. It's a barrage of information. So he said, every time you breathe, stop playing. And the kid sounded terrible. <laughs> You know, he could barely play. He'd be cooking along and then he'd breathe. And then it would. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, but I, I realized what the point was. And it's, you know, a little bit back to the West Coast thing. You know, we're not machines. When isn't know. that. We're human beings. Human beings listen to us. Give them a minute to think about what you just did. Isn't that a risk um, in really in any instrument that you don't breathe into? Like, you have to. You got to stop playing to breathe. That's the that's the whole well, idea, but if you're, that, play, you know, yeah. playing pipe organ or, or something that has no or d d drums or you know piano or whatever guitar, there's the it's the, the people have to stop talking to breathe in, and so uh, I think you know human nature is they, like there's a reason that a phone number was seven numbers and then it was tended with a hyphen in between because things are packaged in ways that you can remember, and that's right. what like vocalists. And and breath based instruments, it's built in that phrasing is uh, phrasing is favor uh, phrasing that style of phrasing favors human consciousness in a certain way. Whereas you know if you if you are not if you're not tethered to that cadence, then you can clearly uh, uh, blow past people's uh, sort of you know to the the Juilliard's guy's point. You need some time to reflect. You know, this is a conversation. It's not a monologue. It's a dialogue. Right. It's the right. that's one of the things that the, one of the reasons this whole podcast exists is because whiskey's not a monologue. It's a dialogue. You can if if there's a if a distillery makes whiskey <laughs> in a forest and nobody's there to drink it, what was the point? 
because you're communicating. You're not just making a thing to make it. There's a conversation happening there. Conversations happen in phrases. Right, right. The, it can't be all one-sided yeah. or it doesn't yeah. work. That's I, why the live stream stuff has been so tough to watch. I feel for the band. I'm not enjoying myself. I'm sitting alone on my couch, and one of my favorite bands or performers is in an empty room doing a thing through the pandemic, and it, it's very few have made it very effective, and it points out just that whole... I've only been the part of the crowd dynamic, but you feel right. very much a part of a part of it. You are a part yeah. of it. Here's here's the thing. You guys are like this. Keith Jarrett, we were playing uh the Deer's Head Inn in the Delaware Water Gap. It's a famous old jazz club. And Keith Jarrett said something and I, I've never forgotten it, and I take it with me every time when I'm with a band that, that I run to figure out what to play. He said, if I don't call the first tune correctly either it's too hard for the band or not familiar enough or they're bored with it he goes i've now put myself in a hole that i spend the rest of the gig trying to dig out from and i never really get back to ground zero but if i call the right first tune and the band congeals and gels and we transmit energy to the audience and they dig on it, and they send it back, it creates a system, a cycle, that now runs for the entire show, and, and we're up and ready to go. But if I make the first tune the wrong call, I, I can't I can't. Survive. Right. It's a first impression. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you can't really make a second first impression. So you're just right. having it, you're just working from a point of deficit. That's the thing, like, Kurt, the thing you sent me, the YouTube of uh, Rashawn Roland Kirk, he it takes guts to open like that. That the the it's oh like God, the coldest yes. cold open ever, uh, and you know you you get you get the sense that the guy's blind right away, and, and it's like okay that that part makes sense. But uh, he is not in any hurry to get to the meat, meat and potatoes aspects of the, of that opening tune. But when he gets there, it's like again tension release. When he it's there's a lot of tension at the front at the front end of that Ed Sullivan uh, thing, and then when they when they hit the groove. It's like, oh my god! I just got run over. Oh, when they all come, yeah. When they all come in, it, it, it well, the, you know, I was thinking about music that does sustain a, um, you know, sustain a pace or whatever, and that, and that's great, and that's why a Ramones tune needs to be two minutes. <laughs> you couldn't do a five. You can't do a five minute Ramones no. tune. It needs to be, you know. But Love Supreme is however many parts in in it. it it, it you know it goes it goes Matt I wanted to ask you based on what you were just talking about starting out with the wrong song you were talking about something fascinating the other night about um, making mistakes and then you were talking about working with a young player he'd made a mistake and but you were talking about making a mistake and then working to reconcile that and adjust that through through the rest of it and and I yeah that was, was the thing with yeah that was the thing with Maynard guys they rarely made mistakes on solos stuff that clearly, you know, it's a minor and they played a major or whatever. Uh, but it was always so fun to watch them work their way out of that to basically make it as if that was what they wanted to do and meant right. to do. And to me, again, it's, it's undiscovered country. Sometimes as soloists, the best things we do is make a mistake because then it's not going to be a perfect solo. So your mind opens up to a lot, a lot of more possibilities that didn't exist when you thought, man, it's going great. I'm, I'm killing it. I'm moving straight ahead. I'm hitting all the things. You just stay in that little comfort zone. But you make a mistake. Now you got to try and it's human nature. I want to fix that. I want to try and make that right. And it, it was just always amazing because somehow by the end of the solo, they would take whatever that wrong note was and just keep playing it. And fix finding ways to fit it in, and by the end of the solo, you were almost like, "Did did he mean to do that? Right? Was that like a motif? <laughs> mistake motif? Right. <laughs> it's it, it, mistake making is fertile soil for learning. I mean, it's it's far more fertile than not making mistakes. But, you know, you, you end up playing, you play yourself into a safety box uh, that doesn't challenge you in ways. Uh, it's like. 
it's like a trapeze without a net. You know, you, you're going to, of course, that learning curve is pretty, pretty harsh. But uh, if, like you'd mentioned, you know, uh, listening to high school players and them not wanting to go too far off of the diatonic scale, uh, because that's that's skiing too far out of the wake, and there's a liability of crash there. But it's the crash, it's the crash and the burn where where you learn who you are, uh, you know, and you make enough of them, and you and you start to. We talked about it the other night. You just improve your batting average a little bit at a time. Yeah. Well, you learn you're going to survive, and so you just keep cracking away at it. Yeah. Well, there's those players that. I mean, this is just me as a. I mean, you guys can speak the language. It's me just as a, a as a listener. There are, I also, too perfect is pretty uninteresting a lot of times. A lot of times. And I've always, I don't, I'm sure it's not a term you guys use, but I think a lot about, of players who do a good job with the right, wrong notes, that they, 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 they bring those in there. If you think about, uh, Dave Rawlings, Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings. You think about Dave Rawlings scales, but his tendency to go to a flat or a sharp or something in there that doesn't sound quite right, but it sounds so right. And it brings so much texture and interest to what he's playing because he plays a lot of scales, which can be re- in and of itself would just be sort of boring. But my informal term is he brings in a lot of the right wrong notes that that reconcile in there somewhere and make it so much more interesting. Yeah, that stuff, uh, Matt. You've, I mean, you've made a career out of that. Uh, that's, I, I, you know, I feel like, like jazz. The, the my favorite styles of jazz are the ones that explore uh, progressively more, not technically wrong notes, but, but messing with people's sense of where harmony ought to lead. Right. And I, I think that's the foundation of like really compelling jazz to me. Yes. And and that leads to one of my all time favorite things on TV. You're not stupid. Jazz is stupid. <laughs> Jazz is stupid. Just play the right note. Oh my god. <laughs> that that part, I think when you you know, when you look at um you'd mentioned, you know, the 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 Aesthetic differences between a blended whiskey and a single malt Scotch whiskey—they're—they're both—they're both valid. They both have a role to play. Yeah. They're both terrific in their own way. Uh, but if you listen to, and I—I I was, I was amazed to find out that uh, Holdsworth uh, mixed, engineered, produced that record himself in his own studio. Uh, and it, you know, that the t- the tone of the the Chick album, the tone of the Alan Holdsworth album, is different than the tone of a Yellow Jackets album. You know, it's just it's right. mixed differently. Just like you would put together right. a blended Scotch versus a single malt, you put you drink in a single malt because it's sort of the it's the 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 ragged edge of the material, and the and the ragged bits are the are the are the point. Uh, you right. know, the interesting yeah. part. Blended Scotch is, is engineered, not exclusively, not 100% of the time, but Blended Scotch is engineered to be more accessible to more people more of the time, uh, to meet a set of, uh, um, to meet a set of uh, standardized expectations more accurately more of the time. And you can, you can point to thousands of Blended Scotch whiskeys, uh, some of which are, are quite good, and there is, you can't find a, anything technically wrong with them. But there, sometimes if there's a knock on them, there's the knock is that there's nothing that's compellingly super right yeah. about them either, you know. Right. And that tends to be that tends to be the darker recesses of the psyches of those liquids. That those get softened or or shaved off or engineered away, then the then the compulsion to to bear your soul to it because it's a it's a it's a cyclic communication stream between you close a circuit when you open a bottle of whiskey you put your headphones in listen to an album you're closing an important circuit that remains open until you do that so you know if 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 blended scotches or japanese whiskeys or whatever whatever whiskeys fall into that that uh, that category of of being judged along those lines they satisfy. It's like uh, when when frampton stopped making albums that he wanted to make and started trying to make albums that he thought his fans wanted to hear his career went to shit so you end up in that in that that problem area where something that's so engineered to satisfy can be uh, paradoxically unsatisfying. Okay, I've got I've got a story along those lines about 
really closing it down and making it right. Uh, and be also being afraid to, we were, we were in Germany. Uh, there was a, a Indian restaurant in the base of this Hamburg hotel we were in and the entire band went in, had Indian food and we'd all been given our keys. So now we're matriculating to the, this bank of elevators. There's four elevators. We all go up. The Maynard's band, uh, was predominantly kind of made up of a race, a religion, and an ethnicity. Uh, basically, blacks, Jews, and Italians were a big component of jazz. And I don't know why that is, but they always have been. So we get on the elevator, and I'm laughing uncontrollably. And Maynard happened to be on the elevator. It was Maynard Nine, Ed Sargent, who was Maynard's road manager for 20 years. He's been Joan Jets for the last 20 or whatever. So I'm laughing uncontrollably and people are going, what are you laughing at? And I can't say now going to the gig, I'm back on the elevator with Maynard and Ed and a couple of guys in the band. And again, I burst out laughing. I, and they're all like, what? And I was like, no, 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 I can't do it. We go play the gig. I happen to be just me, Ed and Maynard on the way up and Maynard, I'm laughing uncontrollably when we get on the elevator and Maynard is like, okay, babe, I'll play. What gives? And I said, well, boss, over here, these elevators we've been riding on all day, these are called lifts. They don't call them elevators, they're lifts. And he's like, yeah. And I said, well, did you notice who manufactured all these elevators? And there was this big gold placard, and it had a huge S, and it said Schindler Corporation. And I said, we've been riding around on Schindler's lifts all day long. And I was wow. afraid that the Jewish guys in the band would be completely yeah. offended by yeah. that. And he goes, and this is where he closed the circuit. He goes, no, babe, I think you got that all wrong. I think they'll laugh the hardest. <laughs> and, and when I told him, he was absolutely right. I, I, was, I was afraid to close that circuit because yeah. I thought it was the wrong, I was on the wrong side of the thing. Yeah, we were riding around on Schindler's lifts. It's <laughs> Dan, Dan, if you can take a note, we're going to need that snare drum with that rim shot. Yeah, I need to, I need to get that out of We're really coming up out short of storage. On yeah, that needs, to, that needs to happen quickly. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, we, so we've, we've just run past an hour, and I could do this for another four. Um, uh, Matt, if you'd be interested. So, I, and I'd explained it when we were uh, sort of in podcast rehearsal. Uh, one of the categories that I'd laid out in the in the bones of this podcast was sort of written f uh, for you, uh, and it was the one that talks about uh, whiskey making uh, as a framework that informs without dictating. Uh, and and jazz to me is a, particularly combo improv jazz is a form of communication that, that even for the people on stage, the process is informed by the framework, but the, the, the end result is not only not dictated to anyone, it is fully unpredictable. Uh, and I, that's I, the reason that I would like to have you on again uh, is because we could talk about all that stuff for a billion hours. But I know that sure. you've, you've spent a career exploring that space and for me, that's that's uh, you you put a you put a whiskey straight off the still into a cask. You've done everything you can. The rest is no longer up to you. Like once you once you've right. written a song, uh, you release it to the world. It's no longer your song. It's the world's song. You know, it it, it isn't. And you can't tell people how to feel when they hear it. You can't tell people how to interpret right, 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 what right. it is that you've done. Like somebody hears the solo of yours, you can't tell them how it ought to make them feel. You can't tell people how right. to drink whiskey. You can try, and there are loads of people that do what I do that try to tell people how it ought to go, and that's that is uh, that usurps uh, the interpretational aspects of whiskey drinking in a horribly unfair way. Uh, so I, I'd love to have more conversations with you uh, moving forward uh, as we uh, as we get to uh, uh, future episodes. Please feel free to contribute to the collaborative list in any way that you'd like, any time you'd like. Uh, maybe drop us a note uh, until the next time we have you on. Drop us a note and, and give us a few uh, uh, just notes on, you know, what you were thinking when you added it and, uh, and just some tidbits here and there. Sure, sure, sure. That'd be fantastic. Uh, Kurt, do you do you have anything that you want to uh, to close with? Well, I, 
I loved talking with you, Matt. Uh, this is our first meeting, although I know uh, I've spent a lot of time at Finest Hour shows and other things, and I know that indirectly, uh, no, not indirectly, very directly, I've enjoyed your playing, and 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 I just didn't know, I didn't know, didn't know it at the time, like I know now, and I, I just um, that's fun to think about for me, and so it's been really fun to meet the guy behind the horn and uh, have this conversation with you. Appreciate you having me on, Man. fellas. Anytime, uh, let's do it again. Yeah. You'll always be our first guest. <clears throat> you really, Thanks. no one can Thanks, take Dan. that away from you. Or us. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. That was a lot of fun. Let's yep. do it again Thanks, soon. fellas.